Hey everyone, Steve here. You know, often our guests will send us a couple copies of their books and sometimes they're signed. We wanted to get those books in your hands, so just wanted to let you know that we've created a page at our website for you all to win a weekly book giveaway. Go to eternalleadership.com slash book and you can register there. That's eternalleadership.com slash book. We'll have that link in the summary of this MP3 as well, but be sure to go back once in a while and see what book we're giving away that week. It's eternalleadership.com slash book. Thanks. You cannot grow others unless you grow yourself. I think a lot of times we think, well, I got to get these people to follow me. And that leads to a lot of external factors or a lot of tactics of trying to fix somebody or fix the situation or fix the team. When in reality is if we spent 80% of our time or more on ourselves on getting our inside right, then we give people around us the freedom to do the same. And just through osmosis, they're going to, they're going to feel empowered to do the same. Now, if you become more intentional about it, then you become on fire. And that's, that's just the way I look at it. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, entrepreneur, leadership coach, and the host of Dose of Leadership podcast, Richard Ryerson. On his show, Richard's interviewed more than 200 CEOs, thought leaders, executives, like Dana Perino, the former White House press secretary, Simon Sinek, Barbara Corcoran from the Shark Tank. I could go on, but we wanted to get Richard's story and find out what he's learned from interviewing so many thought leaders. You'll quickly hear the connection that my co-host John Ramstead has with Richard. He's a fan of our show, and it's always exciting to have people that are paving the way take notice of us, give us encouragement, and say they listen. Thanks, Richard. Here now is how John got that conversation started. Steve, today on the Eternal Leadership Podcast, we have a great friend of the show, Richard Ryerson. I'm really excited to have him on today. Well, I didn't know much about Richard, and fortunately for us, he was running late from a previous appointment, and so we spent the last half hour while he was driving back to his home studio just chatting with him, and I like him. I like him a lot. So, Richard, it's great to have you on. That's great to be here. Yeah, it was fun talking. You know, I've been having a heck of a day, but uh, it was good to finally connect with people in my tribe, uh, the broadcasters, the people passionate about leadership. So I'm excited to, to be with you guys again. Gives me a great sense of comfort after running around and breaking my laptop today and doing all kinds of stuff. So <laughs> and getting a parking ticket, too. So it's well, all it's all uphill from here, right? It's all uphill. And, you know, uh, Steve, Richard reached out to me when he, he listened to our podcast and saw what we were doing. Yeah. And the first thing I found out about Richard that I just loved, it was, he was a Marine Corps aviator, so we both have wings of gold. And <laughs> we could spend hours talking about stories from the cockpit and everything that we learned. But, uh, uh, you know, what Richard has done, he's, he's taken that military career in the Marine Corps as a pilot. And, uh, you know, he's a husband, he has uh, four daughters at home, but he's just have this insatiable passion for leadership and ev everything you've done, Richard, since you've gotten out of the Marine Corps, what you've done as a commercial pilot and an entrepreneur and a speaker and a trainer. And I know you're doing a lot of work coaching with people and working with mastermind groups and uh, the outcomes that people are receiving and working with you are incredible. But what I really also want to encourage people, your podcast which has become mm -hmm. my favorite. Every episode that comes out, it's at the top of my playlist. It's called Dose of Leadership. I really encourage people to find the podcast, subscribe to that podcast. Hey, leave Richard a, a review. That's always very helpful, as we all know. But you've interviewed some of the top living thought leaders 
in the world today. I could go through a list of names, but they are the who's who out there. And I know that this has not only blessed your audience, but it's also opened a whole new world for you on just how you're looking at leadership and applying it. So welcome to the show, Richard. Oh, thanks for having me here. And again, I, you know, I, I just love what you're doing. Again, I did I did a search on leadership podcast, I guess. I think I, yeah, what I was doing is I was actually seeing, you know, how you can type to see, you know, keywords in iTunes. And I was seeing if when I type in leadership, if my podcast was coming up and yours came up. And I said, man, I got to And I started reading about it. So I got to get in touch with this guy. So, uh, yeah. And uh, I just love your show. I love what you're doing. And, of course, having the Goldwing background between the two of us was an instant help, help with the connection. But, uh, and then Steve, just meeting you this afternoon on the phone call. I mean, I just, I love what you guys are doing. So thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. You know, before we get started, we always like to just dig in a little bit and hear about your personal story just so people can connect to you and who you are. So let me turn that over to you. Well, yeah. So like you said, I was a, a pilot for the better part of 10 years from 1991 to 2001 and uh, loved aviation. Again, I didn't didn't really know much about flying. I always wanted to be a pilot, but I put it out of my head. I, I thought the only way to do that was becoming uh, through the Naval, Naval Academy or something or the Air Force Academy. And I'm like, eh, I didn't have the grades for it and I wasn't in. So I kind of put it out of my mind. But then I found that there were other opportunities and I found out the Marine Corps had planes and then or an aviation program. And that's I just signed up on the spot that day. At the, the recruiter was at the uh, student union there and I signed up and went home and my dad about, fell out of his chair. But it was the best decision that I ever made. And, why, why, why did he fall out of his chair? What, what, what kind of teenager were you? <laughs> he just... I just think it was the furthest thing he thought I would do. And, you know, it just, I was always about kind of entrepreneurship and business. And I never really told him that I always wanted to be a pilot. And um, he was in the Navy too, enlisted in the fifties. And um, he made some comments like, why did you want to be part of one of them jarheads or something like that? You know, kind of in jest, but he just, but it was the greatest thing. And, and uh, did that for 10 years, became a pilot. And it's just one of those things that just kind of felt like, you know, when you put on a comfortable pair of blue jeans or pick up that baseball glove that's kind of broken in it just kind of felt like this is what I was supposed to be doing and I got out in uh, just had a great time great experience great examples of leadership throughout 10 years and I got out in um, uh, June of 2001 when American Airlines hired me and I thought man I got my dream job I'm gonna do what I love to do get paid a ridiculous amount of money eventually and you know work half half of the month and just doing what I love and did the training all through the summer of 2001. I finished my training on September 8th, 2001. And I was based mm. in Dallas living in Wichita. And I, morning of September 11th, um, was my first official day as a fully qualified pilot. I was supposed to report to Dallas at noon. So I got on a 7 a.m. flight out of Wichita, a deadheading employee and landed at eight o'clock in Dallas. And if you remember from the time frame, you know, seven, 46 um, central time was when the first one hit 756 when the second one hit. So we're taxiing in and the captain's like, Hey, sorry, folks who can't get to the gate. Um, they're not letting anybody leave and they got to get us a new gate. They've shut the airspace down for some reason. And so we finally got into the gate about 825. And I remember there's an older couple sitting next to me and they were nervous because they had a tight connection. So I followed them through the jet bridge out of the terminal, literally, it was like a movie. It was like canceled, 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 coming up on the on the monitors. Mm. And I still wasn't equating what was going on. And remember, we didn't have smartphones then, so you didn't weren't getting the instantaneous, you know, kind of news when you're walking out in public. Behind me was a TGI Fridays and the small little TV screen, and probably about thirty people deep around a small TV screen. And and I said, "What happened?" And I could see the smoke. 
And he said, oh, a little Cessna hit the trade tower. So I still wasn't putting everything together, right? And so I walked another five minutes to the uh, American Airlines Operations Center, walked upstairs. A captain was running down the stairs, exasperated. I said, morning, sir. And he ignored me. And I thought it was something I did, you know, and being a new employee. Then I walked into the ops center and all the pilots, probably about 50 pilots, around a big screen TV and I caught the eye of one of my classmates uh, that I went to uh, school with there at American. And he says, dude, one of those planes was ours. And I'm like, what? And it's, that's when it all came crystal clear. Mm-hmm. So that's the long story version of what kind of pushed me into the corporate arena. I flew six times that month of September. And then October 1st, I was furloughed, laid off. And I remember panicking, thinking, my God, I don't know how to do anything but fly airplanes. What am I going to do? And so I got a job as a shipping supervisor making about 17 bucks an hour and had to do something. And I said, well, I can figure out shipping and receiving. And when I got introduced to the crew and they look, literally look like the sons of anarchy, right? The whole, <laughs> these are like rough dudes and I'm there in my khaki dockers and my JC Penney polo shirt and my short Marine Corps haircut still. And they're looking at me like, who is this joker? And what is he going to teach us? And I remember I just kind of treated it like the Marine Corps. And I said, well, and I said, there's a guy, and he called him Big John. And he literally was, I don't know, 6'2", 6'3", 250 pounds, two teardrop tattoos right here, you know. And he just looked mean as heck. And I said, well, what do you guys need? You know, that's the first thing that I said. And he's like, what do you mean? What do we need? And I said, look, you're the experts. I said, what do you need? Much like a brand new kind of Marine second lieutenant, right, coming into a battle-hardened platoon, you know, that second boot lieutenant's not going to teach them anything, Right. And got a guy like Big John and stuff like that. Those are the ones that kind of pulled me aside and they saw that I cared about them. And that's really kind of started the transition anywhere, the slapping in the face of how much the Marine Corps taught me about leadership and common sense leadership, that it's not about me. And, and that led the path kind of in the corporate arena to me kind of um, thinking, hey, maybe the Marine Corps had something here. And um, it's really been a 14-year journey of that, of working in the corporate arena and trying to apply those lessons on flying multi-crew aircraft, flying aircraft, being a Marine Corps officer and applying it to the business life. Everybody thinks it's about the perception seems to be blind allegiance to orders. But what the Marine Corps taught me was a very loving organization. And um, I can say that with all honesty. That was the most loving organization that I worked in. And I just try to emulate that in my everyday life in the corporate arena. So that's my Cliff Notes version. I could probably keep going on and on any other details. But that's what led me to the, to this podcast, to do a podcast and to teach and coach leadership. Well, you know, Richard, you just did a great interview with Simon Sinek that people need to check out on your podcast. But he has a book called Leaders Eat Last. And there was a message that Simon uh, received when he spent some time with the Marine Corps unit that is really core to your leadership philosophy and, and your success in the in the business world. Could you share a little bit about that? The reason why I want to reach out to Simon is in his book is called Leaders Eat Last, but he got the genesis of it when he met with um, Lieutenant General uh, Flynn, who actually I interviewed, I'm going to post here, and uh, he wrote the foreword to Simon's book. And he was the head of the Lieutenant General, head of all Marine Corps training there for a while. And he had a 35-year storied career in the Marine Corps. And he, and he's, um, he was sat down with them and Simon said, you know, can you describe to me, you know, what the Marine Corps leadership philosophy is? And he said, yeah, it's real simple. Officers eat last. And it is true. It's not written down anywhere. And I remember that was one of the earliest things that I had heard about or was kind of hammered into my, my, you know, young impressionable mind when I was a young officer that this is what it's all about. This is what makes the Marine Corps so unique. 
And John, I know you're from the Navy, but we used to pick up, we used to use the examples of the Navy, like you go on a Navy ship and you got different, I don't know if it's still the same, but they, they were told us, look, the Navy officers eat different than the Navy enlisted. And so, you know, we're going to eat last. If you, if we run out of food, you're the one that doesn't eat. And I just kind of fell in love that with that kind of mentality, you know, and I just think, and I thought it wasn't unique. I thought, you know, any major corporation would have that same philosophy, but it, it really resonated with me. And I know that's what's happened with Simon. He said, this is unique and it is about um, sacrifice and in service and, and, you know, and that's not Marine Corps invented, that's biblical, you know? So, I mean, that's just, those are just leadership principles in an essence that just exist. They just are. And, um, I don't know if I kind of rambled there. Did that answer your question though, about what it was? But I mean, that's kind of what, why I wanted to resonate with Simon and why the Marine Corps was so special to me. Well, yeah, the heart of that, Richard, what you're talking about is really servant leadership. And there's a lot of people, in the corporate world that have never seen that modeled. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're working with corporations and executives and the people you work with, how do you bring some of those traits out that were so successful in the Marine Corps and in your own life into the changes they need to make? And maybe you could tell some stories about what you've seen in people's lives that have kind of embraced that approach of leadership. You know, just even recently, and I was coaching a, an executive and he, you know, and he's, probably 15 years my senior and um great leadership philosophy great character great man of faith um really just all around decent guy and he says you know i just don't know how to take my leadership to the next level and i said what does that even mean to you and he said that you know well he goes i just i don't have the trust and the respect i don't have when they look at me i know they're not looking at me as you know in his mind a successful leader and I kept asking him, what does that mean? What is that? And he said, just the ultimate respect and we'll trust. You know, well, somebody, if someone would come into work on a Saturday by choice instead of me telling them that they have to. You know, I said, well, that's a kind of an interesting way to define success. And I said, and he kept asking for a checklist. He kept asking for the, the strategic plan and how you become a great leader. And I finally, after about four weeks, and I was sitting down with him at a Panera, and I was looking across from him and I said, look, I said, let me just get out of coach role and, and let me go into teacher because this is this is kind of frustrating to me. And I said, you keep asking for checklists. I said, if you want to be a, an impactful leader, an influential leader, I said, then just pour your life into somebody ex not expecting anything in return. I said, just add value to somebody else's life and don't expect anything in return. I said, if you got in a fight with your, I mean, you want to enrich your life with your, with your, with your wife, a better marriage, be a better spouse. I said, you want to have, um, be a better work, you know, have a better job, be a better worker. I said, you want to be a better leader? I said, add value to somebody's life. And, and that is the number one way to gain influence of somebody. And that is biblical by its way, by the way. I mean, it's, isn't that what we're called to do anyway? And it's not to the, to the point where you sacrifice, where you're, where you're um, meek. And I think a lot of times when they, they hear that about being vulnerable and adding value, not expecting a return that you're going to get walked on. I think I know that's a lot of times what people think, oh, I don't want to get walked on. It's, I don't know how it works or why it works, but the more that you increase and pour your life into somebody else, your needs and wants get exponentially met more so than they ever would if you were trying to, hey, I'm going to add value to you because I'm expecting something in return. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's about reframing this mindset that instead of my success is built on the, the people underneath me or around me. Right. I reframe that to my success is going to be built on if I can empower and equip other people 
to be so successful that they love everything about their life and what they're doing here, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. That is going to lift me to the next level, into the next level. But the focus is never on me and what you did for me. And that that is something that needs to catch fire in corporate America. You're absolutely right. You know, and I think it's about you cannot grow others unless you grow yourself. I think a lot of times we think, well, I got to get these people to follow me. And that leads to a lot of the external factors or a lot of tactics of trying to fix somebody or fix the situation or fix the team. When in reality is if we spent 80% of our time or more on ourselves on getting our inside right, then just by doing that, by focusing and getting our, our inside right, then we give people around us the freedom to do the same. And just through osmosis, they're going to, they're going to feel empowered to do the same. Now, if you, become more intentional about it, then you become on fire. And that's, that's just the way I look at it. Well, you know, when we're talking about this concept of leadership, you've interviewed some of the top thought leaders in the world. What are some takeaways that you have learned through some of these interviews of people that have done that well? You know, probably the biggest aha moment for me, and again, I do look at this show, I hope people understand that one, this show has been probably more um, has accelerated my own personal growth on levels that people probably don't see or fully appreciate. But I know I, there's been a few moments where I've had aha moments from talking with people. And early on, I had a conversation with Steve Forbes and, and the interview was okay. I mean, I was, I, I was, you know, one thing I've learned too is that just because people have big names doesn't necessarily lead to a great conversation, but Steve was okay. And I'm not banging on it on, it was just, it was just different. And I was, I realized that um, after the interview was over and the recording was off, and this is why I wish the recording was still going at the time, but we sat, we had a more authentic conversation with the recording was off. And we were talking about fear and uncertainty. And I said, oh, how, how did you, I think the question I said, my exact words were, how did you eliminate fear from your life? And he laughed at me. And he said, are you kidding me? He says, I wake up every day doubtful that I'm supposed to even be in this space. And that's what Steve wow. Forbes said. And that was like, wow. I said, there's no difference between me and Steve Forbes, except for our bank accounts. But that, you know, <laughs> that was the main, that was kind of liberating to me, you know, when I heard that. And then I got that validated maybe a couple months later when I interviewed um, a woman named Fawn Germer. I don't know if you ever heard, her, heard of her, but she had a great book and their names, the name of her book is escaping me. I shouldn't know this, but I forgot it. But anyway, she kind of, she was an AP journalist and she kind of, um, has turned into this kind of uh, leadership and life coach type person, passionate about leadership and change and, and positivity and all this. And, and she wrote a book in 2001. In fact, her release date was September 11th, 2001. And her whole goal was to get, in, get it in front of Oprah. And it finally did. And, and that changed her life. But what she did was is she interviewed 50 uh, powerful women that we all would know from 2001. I mean, and she had talked to like Mother Teresa. She talked to uh, uh, Hillary Clinton. I mean, uh, any, anybody that was a powerful woman and leader at that time, she'd interviewed for this book. And I said, what was your big revelation? And she said, you know, after that book was over, I realized that every single one of those women in Every single one except one, and she goes, and I know that one was lying to me. She didn't tell me who it was. But <laughs> every single one of them still struggle on a daily basis with resistance, self-doubt, limiting beliefs, and self-image issues. And she said that kind of was on one hand liberating, but the other time it's kind of sad as a testament to, to who we are as human beings, right? That, that we beat ourselves up and we hold ourselves back to our ultimate potential. So those, those, that was probably the big one is that we all deal with fear, self-doubt, limiting beliefs, and that 
that's just a resistance dragon that we have to square off every day. And that as pros, pros understand that it never goes away and that we square our, our shoulders and put our feet firmly in the sand, you know, and um, like it says in the book of heroes, you know, stand firm on your shaky legs, right? Fear, you're going to be afraid. And so that's, that was probably my biggest lesson I learned early on in the podcast. And, um, and I still struggle with it. I don't know about you, but I struggle with limiting beliefs and self-doubt all the time. And everybody I coach, everybody I talk to, it's the same thing. And that the other probably tied, tied to that is that you never arrive. I think for the better part of my life, um, I figured it was always chasing something where you plant a flag and you say that you arrived. And uh, so I've learned extensively talking to some of these folks that it's never about that. Because if you do, if you're planting the flag and saying I've made it, then the next thing that comes is probably a fall and that it's kind of like base camp where you, what do you do at a base camp, right? You recharge your oxygen tanks and look at the view and we kind of pat each other in the back, say that, look how far we've come and you rest up and eat up, you know, and get nourished. And then you, you tackle it again the next day. Right. And, uh, so those are probably the two biggest things I've learned that it's a fear and uncertainty never goes away and that it's a journey that never stops, that the leadership develop, it never stops until you assume room temperature. So, <laughs> well, you know, a mentor of mine always said, when you're green, you're growing. And when you're ripe, you're rotting. Yeah. It, the point he was trying to make to me is if you ever think you've arrived, you ever think you're at the top of the hill, the only thing you're going to do is you're going to you're going to go back down into the valley whenever you're there. And he always wanted me to be aware of, uh, you know, you always hear that it's a journey, not a destination. I think we just kind of throw that out. But um, you have to put things in context to a bigger outcome that you're trying to get to in our life, whether it's a purpose or a calling. And, and we have all these seasons in our life that all weave together to get us ready for that next season. When you're at base camp, you're there for a reason for two or three days to acclimate. So you can go up to 18,000 feet and then you acclimate to go, you know, summit Mount Everest or whatever it happens to be next. Yeah. I like that. I mean, I like the analogy of, of the base camp and every, but it's like, to me, it's like a never ending peak. There's never a, a peak really, I guess. And some people that may sound very, um, scary or negative. I don't look at it that way though, I guess, you know, um, I guess I've shifted my focus to that it's never about reaching a peak. Richard, you've just shared some just incredible nuggets of wisdom on just some of the keys for really being an effective leadership here. As we wrap up, what are some key thoughts you'd like to leave with people? Well, I would just say that, you know, I wish everybody would look at themselves as leaders. I mean, a lot of times, you know, leadership is not about the larger than life charismatic presence. You know, the thing that, that what I'm passionate about is I wish organizations would realize that it's not about being led by some charismatic genius. I would rather have an intelligent organization where the people from the, from um, the bottom are coming up or in, in all aspects are coming up with the solutions, coming up with the answers. And uh, that's what, that's the Marine Corps model. That's the military model that, that John, that I know you're familiar with. It's all about decentralized decision-making. I realized that no matter what your situation is, you can choose to lead from where you're at. And so if you're stuck in the middle in an organization where it just doesn't seem like the culture's right, remember, make the decision either, you can either leave or you can start trying to make a difference and start changing that culture no matter where you're at in the organization. I'm a firm believer of that. And so. There's so much more I can share with you. I'd love to come back on your show and talk about more stuff. I know we both got tight schedules, but uh, those are my nuggets, and I appreciate you having me come on the show. Well, Richard, that was excellent. We will definitely have you back on. So listeners, stand by, and please go check out Dose of Leadership podcast. 
We had to keep this one short due to time constraints on both ours and Richard's schedules, but you can be sure we'll have him back on to share what he's learned during his two plus years of interviewing top thought leaders like Dana Perino, Simon Sinek, Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, and more than 200 other CEOs, thought leaders, executives, etc. To learn more about his podcasts, his coaching, his website, his blog, just go to eternalleadership.com slash 055. There in our show notes, we'll have links to all that and more, eternalleadership.com slash 055. As always, that link is embedded in the summary of this MP3. So if, if you're ever having trouble finding that, just shoot me an email, steve at eternalleadership.com, and we'll be happy to walk you through this amazing feature. Next time on Eternal Leadership, Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen CEO, Cheryl Beshelder. I at, literally at one point said, I have to change myself as the leader because I want to create different work environments for the people. She helped turn around a franchise that was horribly underperforming and turned it into one of my boys' favorite places to eat. All through servant leadership. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. <laughs>